morning, Crestmont family. Um, I am joining you on the first Sunday of Advent, which is the Hope Sunday. So I get to preach about hope, which is a beautiful, complicated, long-suffering, wonderful thing. And I think any of us within uh, the church family can resonate with that. Um, The Bible as a whole provides true hope to a disoriented humanity by revealing how God, out of love, will renew all creation. Um, I get to, this Advent series, we're going to be exploring the different covenants throughout Scripture that lead us to the new covenant in Christ Jesus So today, on top of, as we explore hope, I'm going to be exploring the Noahic Covenant with you. Um, Found in Genesis uh, 9, 8 through 17. Hope is God. Yahweh is hope in the Old Testament. Christ in the New Testament. Thus, God himself is a foundation for our hope. The person of God is our hope. Um, This foundational concept of God is shown in the imagery of him as our rock throughout scripture. This solid resting place for us to land wherever we are at. Um, Hope stems from a relationship with God. One where we find security and perseverance. When I have God at the center of my foundation, regardless of the circumstances around me, I can maintain hope. Um, The Old Testament is a promise that points us to the renewal promised. It's also an historical account of how we get to Jesus. So it's this beautiful narrative that all throughout we see God's purposes and plans of hope for his creation. And all throughout we see records of how we got there. Who got us there? From what lineage did Jesus come? How the Lord sustained creation um, through time. We serve the God of hope who continually promises today in light of our salvation, but also promises a fuller tomorrow that we daily orient our minds towards. So this is a concept that we talk about a lot, this already and not yet nature of God's kingdom. We have promises that break in today that we cling to, but we also know that there is a promised kingdom of God here on earth that we orient ourselves towards. We say, Jesus, you're here, but you're also coming again. So that's my little mini-sermon on hope before I get started with the the scripture that we're reading today. Um, I'm using this book as an illustration, but it's taking too much room on the pulpit, so I'm going to put it down. For those of you who don't know, that is the Jesus Storybook Bible, and I often, often reference it in my sermons because it's actually really, really good. Um, The Noahic Covenant of Genesis chapter 9 is the first biblical covenant of the Bible. It provides the framework for all future covenants between God and his creation. Uh, We hear the first mention of covenant in Genesis 6.18. He is, and I think that's in the slides, um, he is speaking to Noah 
as he is um, going into the ark, and he says, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. So this first time that we see this word covenant is in Genesis 6, but it's pointing towards Genesis 9. Um, And it is introducing this idea that God is going to make a promise with mankind. Now, before we get to um, dig into the Noahic Comic, I do want to kind of give us a little context for why this even needs to happen. For those of us um, who uh, may be familiar with the story of like Noah's Ark, we may have heard it growing up. Um, There was a huge flood that wiped out all the animals, all of mankind. There was a family, Noah's family, that the Lord provided instructions to build an ark so that they could be saved from this flood. They could save two of each animal and thus preserve the Lord's creation of man and um, animals. Um, The reason that this flood took place was because humanity had become wicked. God looked at his creation, and it was no longer good after sin entered the world. It was no longer his perfect creation. Therefore, their need, in response to this, he wiped out creation, apart from the, uh, Noah and his family and the animals. He, he took them out. This flood took them all out. Um, this is intense, and I think for those of us who don't have an intimate relationship with God, it's like, what in the world? That is terrifying that God could do that. That God could decide to do that in light of the wickedness of the world. Um, and so we have to ask ourselves, what do we learn of God in this passage? What do we learn of his nature, his relationship with creation, our relationship with God, our relationship with sin? What does this teach us? Because standing alone, apart from the rest of scripture and what we know of God, this is kind of a scary story. But in Genesis 8, once the flood has finished, we see that Noah, Genesis 8.20, Noah offered burnt sacrifice to the Lord. And the Lord smelled the sacrifice. And it was pleasing to him. And as he inhaled this sacrifice, he reaffirmed his purpose of grace and mercy to mankind. This was not necessarily Noah changes God's mind. This was not necessarily the key that unlocked God's purpose, but it reaffirmed for God his purpose to mankind. So I'm going to read this for you. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though... Every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. So this is a commitment reaffirmed in God's own heart as he's smelling the incense. I don't know um, if you ever see us in worship, but sometimes you'll see people go like this. 
It's sort of an act of, uh, it's like an imagery of us using our worship to be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So as sacrifices in the Old Testament, burnt sacrifices rose up and the Lord um, smelled them. That's it's kind of what we're doing here. I remember the first time I saw it, I was like, what are they doing? Is there, are they like blowing away a smell? Like, I don't really get it. Um, but it is us acting out this understanding that we can present sacrifices of our worship, sacrifices of our lives that are pleasing to the Lord. So Noah gave a sacrifice that was pleasing to the Lord that reaffirmed in his mind his purpose and his relationship with with mankind, which was to redeem it. But you'll notice in that passage, it says, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. So the flood did not solve the problem of sin and death in creation. It still remained. So God's purpose stood parallel to this. It stood um, not related to man's being cleansed by this flood. Man was still suffering sin and death, and the Lord said, I will make this commitment despite the sin that still ravages creation. My commitment and my purpose is to save mankind. So, Genesis 9 through 9, 8 through 17 is where we get into the nitty-gritty of the Noahic covenant. Uh, it's broken up into two really manageable pieces. Um, and, and good for you, because we're not going to read through the whole thing, because I get lost when we read really long scripts or passages. So we are going to explore verses 8 through 11, which contain the oath of God to Noah. And then verses 12 through 17, which contains the sign that is attached to this promise. So we have a promise and then a sign. Uh, Immediately preceding this Noahic covenant, the Lord tells Noah what life should look like after the flood. He gives instructions for how they should eat Um, how they should uh, sustain and multiply life, how they should cultivate creation after this devastating flood. And it echoes kind of what God said to Adam at creation. You will um, maintain the earth. You will multiply. It it contains obligations for how they would eat. They would um, not eat the meat of animals. All of this was um, God's Uh, way of reigniting life and sustaining life in creation post-flood. Now that, those commands are not attached to this oath. There are some who believe, um, some traditions who believe, oh, we must follow the commands God gave to Noah in the beginning in order for this to take place. This oath stands apart from Man not um, eating meat. Man um, treating creation in the way that God is calling him to. And we know this because this covenant remained. And just a few chapters after this covenant, we find Noah um, in sin. And that did not dismantle this oath. This oath sustained because of the eternal purpose of God to redeem apart from man's sin. Okay, so let's get into it. The oath. 
9, 8 through 11. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. This is God's promise to Noah and mankind. This is great, But it leaves us wanting today. If this were the only covenant we were given, um, I think it's wonderful, especially on a day like today, that we know never again will there be a flood that wipes us all out. But I think any of us sitting in this room know that sin and death has had a greater effect than floods on our world. There is sickness, there is death, there is fear. And we need a greater covenant than just God promising not to flood creation again. So, what we get in this part is we know we have a God who makes covenant with us in spite of the sinful world around us. But what we're left wanting is him to promise deliverance from all of the effects of sin and death. So we gain, we gain this understanding of a God who makes promises to creation but we're left wanting. Now when we move into 9, 12 through 17, the sign. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. I think it's interesting in this passage, not only does he say you will remember, he says I will remember. This sign will serve both of us to remember what was before, what has been promised, and so what will happen moving forward. Um... It is to remind God himself to keep his covenantal promise. I love um, that this sets the stage for us to begin to build on as we explore the covenants in the following weeks. So um, I want to point out a few things, and I think it's two slides from here, about the Noahic covenant that we find in future covenants. So, um, it's a graphic. I don't know if you can see it. I sure can't. Um, But I have it up here, so we're good. Um, This covenant that God made with Noah is universal. He says, never again across all creation will I do this. I will not wipe out mankind from a flood. It's unconditional. It stands despite the sin that exists in the world. There was a sacrifice that preceded this covenant. Noah made a sacrifice, and there was a precedent in Scripture for sacrifices preceding promises and covenants and oaths. So this is following a pattern that we can trace through Scripture, through future covenants, into our new covenant through Christ. And there is an oath or a promise and a sign. 
So these are four things that we can look at that exist in this covenant that we can look for in future covenants from God and trace his character, his promises throughout scripture. Um, So why does it matter that we study old covenants when we know that we have a new covenant? Because from the very beginning of scripture, in Genesis, God shows himself faithful to us, that he is a promise giver and a promise keeper. This is something that we can carry with us. We do not have to wait until the birth of Christ to get to understand who God is, which is important for some of my points that I'm talking about later because our hope is God. We have to know something of God's character to have hope in what he's promised. So as we look at these covenants, we can see this is how God has interacted with humankind throughout history. I can learn something from God through exploring these covenants. And I can learn something, but I can also see what's missing. Where does it fall short? Where does it leave me still wanting more? Great, it's not going to flood. That is not my healing. Because I don't need healing from a flood today. I don't need deliverance from a flood today. I need more than that, and I need God to reveal to me what more is contained in his promise to me. So we look at it, we learn about God, and then we begin to cultivate this idea of Maranatha, of like wonderful, God came and he broke in and he interacted with humankind, but God, I want more. I need more, and I long for more of your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. But we know there is more. We have the privilege of having the entire narrative of Scripture and knowing that this was not his last covenant, but that there was a new covenant in Christ Jesus. And I want to look at that new covenant in light of hope today because we're going to explore different topics throughout this series, and today's is hope. So I want to pull up Isaiah 9, 2 where it says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. In this passage, Isaiah is prophesying to King Ahaz and the oppressed people of Israel. He's declaring in the midst of their oppression that there is a light promised to them, which we know is the light of the world, Christ Later on in this prophecy in Isaiah contains many of the very familiar um, prophetic words about the coming of Christ, about his deliverance. Because in John 8, we know that Christ declares himself as the light of the world. I love this because he is fulfilling this passage right here is fulfilling. I read this and I was like, oh my goodness, that's so powerful. I hope it's powerful for you. He is fulfilling the literal hope of Psalm 23, 4, which says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, Emmanuel, God with us. So even in Isaiah, in the Old Testament, we have a prophecy of the coming King Jesus who is light in the darkness. And I don't know if you've ever been in a hopeless place, but man, do you want light. You want something to break into that space and to give you hope. 
and we know that that hope is Christ Jesus. So the literal hope in Psalm 23, in the darkness we have a light, it is Christ Jesus, and I will cling to that, even though hopelessness surrounds me. This is the hope that we learn comes from Christ, who brings about the new covenant. So that place we were left wanting is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. In Hebrews 8.6, it says, But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is superior to theirs, as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. Since the new covenant is established on better promises. So oftentimes when we talk about the old covenant, it's talking about the Mosaic covenant. That's not my scripture. I'm not going to go there. But we know that there were old promises. There was an old law. There was an old way of approaching God that followers of God relied on for hope. If we follow the law, the Lord will deliver us. If we come again, if we seek his face, the Lord will deliver us. We will follow that. And we know that there was a lot of hopelessness in that because people kept seeing themselves fail. You could not follow the law. So God says, Jesus is superior. There are better promises. I am not just saving you from Egypt. I am not just saving you from a flood. I am saving you from the entirety of sin's effect on the world. I am saving you from death. So Jesus' covenant is a better covenant. And it's one that we can step into today. So one thing that we can hold on to in these covenants as we begin to learn them, as we begin to collect more knowledge of them through this Advent season, is we get a deeper and more robust picture of God's relationship to us. Divine covenants structure the relationship between God and mankind. They give us another glimpse of who our God is, what he is like. In spite of us. So what does that mean for us today? What is our hope? As we explore this trajectory we've been on where we see, okay, God makes promises to Noah in Genesis. Then God gives signs throughout the Old Testament of the coming king. And then he declares that with the coming of Jesus, a new covenant has been established, which is better and has better promises. What does that mean for our hope today? Well, we're going to unpack three points that I have for you today. One, our hope is rooted in the person of God. He is hope. He is our hope. Uh, One of the best... If you just want to, like, overdose on hope passages, I would encourage you to go to the Psalms. It's really a place where we encounter people engaging hope. And I want to share some with you today. I, um, I read in my preparation that Psalms was a good place to go, so I pulled up hope, and man, there's a lot. And I just went through some, and, and, and three stood out to me, and I just want to read them to you. But God will never forget the needy. The hope of the afflicted will never perish. Psalms 9, 18. 
Psalms 33:18. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. And finally, Psalm 42, 5. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed with me, within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And like we were introduced in worship today, many of those psalms are linked to stories in Scripture where there was hopelessness surrounding the writer. But they had placed their hope in God because of their understanding of who he was despite what was going on around them and they cried out to him and I want to tell you today that at the very basis when you are seeking hope when you are preaching hope we look to God and we look to who he has been in our lives and we look to who he will be in our future Um, I had the experience of Healing in my body uh, from anxiety that I suffered with for years and years and years. Um, I don't count the years I prayed for it anymore because the Lord delivered me. But I want to tell you something that in in the 15 years, I think, maybe 17, I don't know. No, 15. In the 15 years that I prayed for healing in my body, one thing that gave me hope was who I knew God to be in spite of my reality. Um, There was a season when I was seeking healing when my faith was so high because of who I knew God to be. And I was like, oh, I know God is healer. Therefore, he's going to heal me. And then there was a season where that had yet to happen. And I looked around and I said, this doesn't make sense to me, God, because this is who you are. Why has this not happened yet? But in that place, because of who God is and who he had been, and because I had a community of believers around me who spoke the truth of who God is in spite, I could declare that God was my healer in my waiting place. And I'm not telling you that that is an easy thing at all. In your waiting place, in your hopeless place, it can be very dark. And that is why we reach out for what we know of who God to be. We reach out to our community and say, who is God in spite of my circumstances? Like, what is God's promise in spite of where I am today? Because right now, I'm weary, I'm tired, I'm angry, and I just need you, God, to shine a light in my darkness. So our hope is rooted in the person of God, and I oftentimes found hope. I fell in love with God um, at a young age, younger age, uh, by learning about him. I I didn't have necessarily like a crazy encounter at like camp. I saw all my friends doing that, and I was like, man, I want that. (laughs) I want to, like, fall in love with God, like, weeping. Um, But I actually fell in love with God uh, by reading about him. I was talking with Brandy about this the other day. I remember one time reading a book about God's character and just weeping. Um, I thought it was because I was a nerd. Um, But Brandy reaffirmed, like, that was probably just God encountering you. I was like, ah. Of course it is. I know that to be how he does it. Um, So 
the Lord allowed me to fall in love with him through gaining knowledge of who he was. I loved to learn, to be like, this is who God is. This is what God did. I had all of that in my arsenal over the 15 years that I waited for God to heal me. And I could point back to it. I could say, right now I don't feel it, but you are healer. Right now I don't feel it, but you are deliverer. Right now I don't feel it, but you are good. And I have seen your goodness in my life. As we grow in our understanding of the person of God, we cultivate a foundation of faith in his character, power, mercy, and grace. And that is what we stand on. That is our rock in the hopeless places. Our hope is initiated then through a relationship with Christ. Right? So we have this foundation. Foundation is great. Foundation is knowledge. But without relationship with Christ, we do not have the hope for the promise that he has given us. Hebrews 9 tells us that our, we have an inter, eternal inheritance through Christ in this new covenant. An inheritance that is... Universal, that is the forgiveness of our sins and the freedom from sin and death's grasp on our lives. So when we step into relationship with Christ, we have the manifestation of that inheritance through the forgiveness of our sins and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives that continues to minister to us and sanctify us as we walk in our relationship with Christ. Um, I think that my learning of Jesus through, like, book knowledge is beautiful and wonderful, and it worked for me. But if I had never encountered Jesus through relationship, I could walk away and say, wow, what a great story. And it, could, it would be meaningless without Jesus encountering me and having a relationship with me, a living, breathing relationship with me where I speak to him and he speaks to me. Jesus speaks to us. That's insane to me. Jesus speaks to us through dreams and visions, through his word, through other people. And that comes out of relationship. When I am preaching the hope of Jesus to others... Uh, my greatest prayer is not that I say the right thing or they read the right book or they come to church the right amount of times. My greatest prayer is that they encounter the person of Jesus Christ and enter into relationship with him so that they can hear his sweet words that say, you are a child of God, you are mine, you are adopted into this family, and you are forgiven. You are free. In relationship with Christ, he speaks against the ways that the enemy speaks to us in the most intimate way. If you wake up in the morning and you hear over yourself, I am worthless, Jesus will say, absolutely not, you are not worthless. You are mine. If you're walking through and say this is pointless, Jesus can say, absolutely not. This is your purpose. And because you're in relationship with me, you can have hope. Because in, we know that this new covenant forgives our iniquity and our sin. I love this. It's in Jeremiah 31. Their sin I will remember no more. No more. 
Any of us who've walked in sin know the freedom that exists in that passage because the enemy tells us shame will live on your shoulders for eternity if you have sinned. But through relationship with Jesus, we know that our sin will be remembered no more the moment that we repent of our sins and turn from our wicked ways. It's a beautiful thing. Shame off us. This is a reality that we come into realization with, not just through knowledge of God, but through relationship. I, the reality of shame off me would be really hard to embrace if I just held on to the book knowledge of God. If I had not seen him work powerfully in my life before, I could not carry it. I'd be like, oh, that's a nice concept that Jesus could forgive me. But when I have been in relationship with Jesus and he has spoken to me and he tells me no more, that thing that you walked under for years, no more, you are free because of the new covenant in my blood that covered all. Our hope also leaves us expectant of God's kingdom. The hope that we have this Advent season is that we are expectantly awaiting the promised return of Christ. We steward the already and not yet nature of the kingdom of God, boldly inviting his kingdom to break into the sin and death around us, yet longing and calling forth the fullness of his kingdom to come. We steward this already not yet reality. And we say, Jesus, today we ask for your kingdom to come. Oh, but Lord, tomorrow bring your kingdom in its fullness. And we walk in that balance daily. And this is a hope that we do not retain for just ourselves, but we preach to the hopeless around us. This is a hope that says, Oh, Lord, come in healing. And, oh, Lord, come, because I know your kingdom is a better one. Healing today is a miracle, and I will praise you, and I will worship you. But the fullness of your kingdom, Jesus, I want it. I remember as a child, I struggled with this concept because there were a lot of things I was looking forward to, and I didn't really want Jesus to come before those things happened, like I wanted to drive, I wanted to get married, I wanted to have kids, I wanted to work in a city and be a cool city working person. And I was like, please, Jesus, I mean, I want you to come, it's good, but um, not yet. But as I have grown in my relationship and understanding, as God has met me, as I've grown in intimacy with him, I realize that nothing of this world compares to what is coming in his kingdom. Nothing of this world is worth waiting for Jesus to come. And so today we preach, come today, but Jesus, come in your fullness and in your glory. I want to read, I think I skipped where I was going to say it, but I don't care. Um, There is intentionality I think, in us giving this Bible when we dedicate babies at Crestmont. Um, Because I read a lot of storybook Bibles growing up, and they were wonderful. But I feel like oftentimes the stories were kind of compartmentalized. So it's like, oh, let's read the one about Noah today, or oh, let's read the one about da-da-da-da-da. And there was ones with pictures that I liked more, so I asked for those more. But this 
book does a beautiful job of from the very beginning teaching our children and us that the narrative of God's love and his redemption of his people existed from creation. And it is traced throughout every story that exists in scripture. So I just want to read one passage, and it is um, after Adam and Eve leave the garden. Um, God loved his children too much to let the story end there. This is our hope. Even though he knew he would suffer, God had a plan, a magnificent dream. One day he would get his children back. One day he would make the world their perfect home again. And one day he would wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. And though they would forget him and run from him, deep in their hearts, God's children would miss him always and long for him. Lost children yearning for their home. Before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. It will not always be so. I will come to rescue you. And when I do, I'm going to do battle against the snake. I'll get rid of the sin and the dark and sadness you let in here. I'm coming back for you. And he would. One day, God himself would come. That is the hope of the Advent season. That from the very beginning of man's failure, the very beginning of sin and death entering this world... God had a plan to redeem and bring his children back. And he would fight for them, and he would shine light in the darkness. And that is our hope today. That is a hope that lets me walk through my community and see violence and death and say, God, come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because this is not what you want. And it also helps me boldly proclaim that sin and death will not overcome my city. I can go to a corner in a community down the street from my house where I know that there is violence and death, where there has been a death in the last six months. And I can proclaim the name of God over that place. I can proclaim Father because I have hope in spite of the very real violence that exists in that place. Because God is my foundation of hope and who I know him to be. And because of my relationship with him, because how he has encountered me, I can declare healing over that place because he has been my healer. And I sit there and I pray and I say, Jesus, violence will end because I know through your power it can. And I also say, Jesus, your kingdom must come in fullness. It's the only way. And I can cry, and that does not have any effect on my hope. Because I am flesh, and God is God, and he is hope. So even in my weeping, I have hope. How crazy is that? Our hope is foolishness to the world. It makes absolutely no sense. How can I watch loved ones 
die? How can I watch sickness? How can I see this and still have hope? Because I hope in a God who has a plan for redeeming us, and I have seen it with my own eyes. Friends, engage the hope. Be expectant that God will do what he promises. Don't say, oh, that's a nice passage in scripture. Pray it into your reality. Have others pray that reality into your your context. Say, I am not satisfied. I know there is more, Jesus. I know there is more healing. I know there is fullness of your kingdom that can break in. So, Jesus, I will pray with fullness of hope of your kingdom. And I will walk away praising you as hope giver and also calling forth the hope that I know comes with the fullness of your kingdom. So come quickly, Lord Jesus, the hope and the redeemer of creation, who sustained it from Noah's time so that we could have Christ come and initiate a new covenant through his blood that takes away the sins of the world, conquers death, and sees fullness of his glory and his grace.